Hey, welcome to Rockbridge. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team, and we're just thankful that you're here. Want to give a shout out and thank you for joining us. Any of our six locations, we're one church in uh, multiple locations, and also those of you who are tuning in or watching online, thank you so much uh, for joining with us. You can throw in the chat room maybe where you're watching from or where you're near the nearest city to you is, and we'd love to say uh, hello specifically to you. Hey, before we jump into uh, our, our series called uh, Promise Keeper, just want to remind everybody. This coming Wednesday night, online as well, and all at six of our locations, we have what I call our most important service of the month because we pray together, uh, we take the Lord's Supper together, we worship together. And something I'm excited about is all what, I, what I'm going to share with you this uh, first Wednesday is just some answers to prayer. We began 2021, if you remember, and we said, hey, do we want a year based on what we can do, or do we want a year based on what God can do? And we talked about moving our church, moving our lives in the direction of greater dependence upon God and seeing God move through this ordained thing called prayer, that he's ordained to move forward in history and his plans and his purposes on, on the prayers of his people. So I'm excited. I've been getting just screenshots of digital conversations, stories of life change, of healings, of salvations. So just excited to give you a snapshot of that uh, first Wednesday. So just encourage you to tune in and engage with that. All right. So we're in this series we've said called Promise Keepers. And we've said all of us are right now you're living by a promise, whether it's the promise of a paycheck or the promise of a relationship or the promise of a career, the promise of an education, the promise of the workout routine, the promise of the diet you're trying, or the promise that, hey, summer's coming, right? And vacation's coming. All of us are walking on the path that's laid out before us based on a promise. And we've discovered that God also woos us, relates to us, guides us through his promises. And we have choice of whether we lean in and believe those promises or not. And today we're going to talk about probably what I will call the absolute most difficult area of our lives to trust God in, and it's our money. It's money, right? See, it got quiet in here just when I said that, right? Because let's just be honest. I'm going to be honest. Few things promise, promise us more in this life than more money. There are just few things that we all think about when we think about money. There's, we, there's stresses with money. There's hopes with money. There's ups with money. There's down with money. And, and, and let's just be completely honest online, completely honest in our physical locations, just in your heart of hearts, true or false. If I had more money, life would be better. I, I think we'd be batting 100%. All of us would say that's a true statement. And if I had less money, life would be worse. Probably most of us would say, you know what, that's a true statement statement and all that's illustrating is this there is a money mentality that all of us possess there is a mindset about money that's ingrained to us by our culture by our upbringing by our economy by our pains by our hopes by our dreams by advertisers by the people in society that get recognized as heroes in, in the athletic arena or in the entertainment arena and it all comes back to who has more money or who has less money and so we go through our days and we absorb these messages and so we have a money 
money mentality. And, and everybody's got a money mentality. And it's so easy for us, even, even in the church world, it's so easy for us to sort of segregate God and limit God in that area or not even lean into God in that area. And then people who have my profession haven't made it easy on you, right? Because so many pastors, so many churches have mismanaged money. So many pastors, so many churches have, have dealt false theology and false promises about money. And, and oftentimes it seems like, hey, the church, they just want to talk about money. But then Jesus talked a lot about it too, so we can't ignore it. So let's just go back to the fact that you walked in here, however you walked in here, we're a church of people from all walks of life, and everybody's got a money mentality. And, and, and most of us, our money mentality is shaped really by these two factors, the math of more right? Plus or a multiplication if you're really making a lot of money. And most of us just think, hey, more money is going to be better for me or better for my family or better for this or better for that. And then a lot of us, most of us, 21st century Americans, right? Life equals standard of living. Well, how do I get a better standard of living? I have to have more money. And so my stresses and my hopes and my worries and my fears and the plans I have in the future all center around this concept of this money mentality that I need more and that my life is based on my standard of living, <clears throat> cars and clothes and what people think of me and what impression I make. And I won't have to worry about X if I had more of money, right? I mean, it's just honest and that's just how we go, right? And then here's the question though. Here's the question. What if our money mentality was built on the promises of God? And that's a powerful question because, and the reason I think it's important for us is in the church, we talk a lot about giving, but we, don't all, we often don't marry giving with the promises of God. Well, you're supposed to give. See you next week right? I mean, that's kind of the way, you know, pastors and, and people with my profession kind of approach it. But what if our money mentality was built on the promises of God? And, and, and let's just be honest, okay? If you're, if you're a born again Christ follower, you've given Jesus your sins and the steering wheel of your life, you are trusting God when your biological clock stops, that your theology, your belief about God, he, you're going to be with him forever. I mean, what greater trust is there than the trust of eternal life? And yet most of us won't trust God with our checkbooks. Why? I, I think the reason is we probably have undertaught or underleaned into the promises of God around this important life subject of money. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn them on, follow along with me on the screen, or open them up to the book of Hebrews. And what's interesting, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. It's kind of the, the tail end of this book. <clears throat> what's interesting is this book is basically, if you had to say one word of what it's about, it would be about persevering and persevering in your walk with Jesus in the face of plundering and robbery, suffering and persecution that the Christian church was going, undergoing at the time <clears throat> that this book or this letter was written. So he, he just starts in, uh, in verse five, he's going through several things and, and he just says, hey, keep your life free from the love of money. And the interesting thing is he's talking about people that by and large don't have money because it's been taken from them or they've lost their homes or they've lost lives or they've been put into prison because they're Christians. And he still tells them this. Now I'm thinking, I'm thinking, man, that's a little insensitive right there, right? 
knowing what this church is going through when, when this letter is written, but it shows you the importance uh, that money can form in our mentality, that even when we don't have a lot of money, we can still be gripped by the desire for more money. And so what he's saying here is, listen, the, the issue is not you having money. The issue is you and I loving money. And that's the challenge. And so he gives a command. And what he's going to do, we're just going to look at two verses. He's going to give two commands that are grounded in one promise. Two commands, one promise. All right, so the first command is, hey, just don't be in love with money. And we have to understand why he's saying that. He's saying that for one reason only, that money is a bad master. Money is an absolutely bad master. And, and we don't have to show hands. We don't have to write it in the comments or the chat room online. But most of us could say this. I have had a fight with my spouse about money. Most of us could say this. In the name of money, I have done some dumb things. I have overreacted about. I have turn left when I knew I should have gone straight just because I wanted to make a dollar. I have sacrificed a relationship for more money. I have sacrificed my family at times for the hope or the promise of money. And so all we have to understand, just first command that we've gotten, he's not, he's not giving us the full money yet, but all we have to say is say, listen, money is not a good master. And Jesus is even more explicit with this because he says this, nobody can serve two masters He's like, you, he says, nobody can serve two masters, excuse me, for you will either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, there's the word, cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So the author of Hebrews is just repackaging something Jesus has already taught. So the first command, keep yourself from the love of money. Second command, and again, he's writing to people that have lost almost everything. And he says, again, this sounds so insensitive, so non-pastoral, so lacking of compassion. He says, hey, be satisfied with what you have. And they don't have much. In fact, there's prob probably everybody that's listening to me give this message, you know, and I, I say, hey, be satisfied with what you have. And some of you are like, eh, well, but I don't, and you know, the money mentality, the, the math of more, or my life is my standard of living. Probably everybody that first heard Hebrews 13, 5 read to them, you know, they're sitting in a church like you are and somebody's teaching or reading this letter and, and they're and like, we'll be satisfied with what I have. I just lost my house. Be satisfied with what I had. You know, some brothers and sisters, they got thrown in prison. You can go read Hebrews 10 and see what they're going through. And then he says, be satisfied with what you have. So two commands, right? Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. And so let's go back to our money mentality. So we have the math of more, I need more, and my life will be better if I have more, versus be free and satisfied. We have my life equals my standard of living versus be free and satisfied. So this, these two commands directly contradict with the money mentality that most of us have in this room and that our culture and our upbringing and our advertising and our economy ingrain into us. This goes countercultural to that. Now, here's the challenge, okay? If I just stopped right there and let's close in prayer and go apply this to our lives, it would feel almost impossible. And here's why, okay? It's really hard to keep a command of God without an accompanying promise of God to back the command up. 
Okay, it's really hard. So when God, through, through the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, writes these scriptures to us and gives us two commands, all right? Two commands about money and man, commands about satisfaction and contentment. Without a promise of God to back it up, we have a vacuum that gets created. A vacuum that gets created. And we're going to fill that with something. And we're going to put something in there. And so we need the grace of God to go in that vacuum. Because if I, again, if I just stopped right now and said, y'all don't love money. Money's a bad master. Be satisfied with what you have. Close in prayer. Let's go. Nobody's life would be any different. You might walk out of here feeling guilty. You might walk out of here like, I'm not sure what to do with that. When I, when I do my budget, I'm not sure what to do with that, with how I look at myself. Because there's no grace accompanying these commands. No grace accompanying this. So we need a corresponding promise from God to help us keep these commands and be free from the bad master and to be truly satisfied with our lives wherever we find them. So before we get to the promise, the author of Hebrews is going to show us the battle line. So if I just ask you this question, just think about this in your, in your, in your brain. When you struggle over money, possessions, and all that, what's the fight about? I mean, and honestly, some of us, it's like, man, I need, to be, I need a budget. I need to be more disciplined. Many of us, I mean, I just need to make more money. I need a promotion. You know, maybe, you, maybe your job had to cut back because of the pandemic, because of the recession. Some of you lost income, lost your job. So I just need more, Matt. I just need more. And that's how you look at it. That might be how I, I look at it. But the true battle line about money is somewhere entirely different. And it's somewhere we don't often want to go. And it's somewhere we don't often want to look. We just treat it as a math problem. And a standard of living goal. Now notice what the author does. It's genius. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's challenging all at the same time. Here's what he says. He says, look, so keep your life free from the love of money, command number one. Be satisfied with what you have, command number two. For he himself has said. Now what he's going to do is he's going to quote two passages from the Old Testament. In fact, the first one is, gets mentioned in multiple places, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Psalm 118. So he's going to quote two passages from the Old Testament because remember, he's writing in the first century. The, the full New Testament had been canonized and completely validated and verified by the church. So he's saying, hey, look, remember what God has said, and he points them to at that time what it would have been their, their most complete version of the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament. So he says, look, remember what God has said. Now, now listen, I, I'm, re, I'm doing this. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not a question of what who said or they said or you said. It's a question of what I have, don't have, and what I need to have. And no, 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 no. Let's think about what God has said. No, 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 you don't understand. It's a math problem, Matt, author of Hebrews. It's a math problem. It's not a what he said, she said problem. And the biblical author is going to keep us here and say, no, 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 no. Before you look at have and have not, you need to look at what God has said. So the key to freedom and contentment is not what I have, but it's rather something God has said. It's the key to your financial freedom. It's the key to you and I living satisfied. It's what God has said. Now, here's why that's a challenge for us, okay? We, when it comes to money, when it comes to possessions, we are not, we are not encouraged by anybody to look at that. We're encouraged by our own eyes, by our own culture out that door to look at that. Have, have not, need, want, and more. That's what we're encouraged to look at. And so, but 
The scriptures say, no, 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 before you, before you get into have, have not, need, want, what has God said? What has God said? Now, ironically, do you know what the key is for you and I to overcome anything? Overcome worry, overcome fear? Do you know what the key for you and I to go from death to life, to be saved by Jesus Christ, is we have to lean into what God has said. Always comes back to what God has said. Not what I feel, because money's emotional, right? Not what I have or don't have, but what has God said? I mean, think about it. The last major decision you made financially, how many of us stopped and said, okay, what has God said? No, I want it. I got to have it. Here's a credit card, right? I mean, no. I mean, I can afford it. I can't afford it. When's the last time any of us, before we kind of, if we do a budget or however you do your finances, when's the last time any of us would have said, no, I'm, I got to go with what God has said? No, no, no. Most of us are like, no, it's what I have or don't have. Two plus two is four, period. It's a math problem. It's a life standard of living problem. That's it. If we're going to be people of the book who follow the author of the book, we got to go with what God has said. So when it comes to money, freedom and satisfaction, but not being enslaved, what could God possibly say that would produce freedom and contentment around the issue that produces so much worry and discontentment? And here it is. For he himself has said, this is the Old Testament quote, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I will never leave you or abandon you. That's what he says. And we're like, that doesn't help my math problem. That really doesn't help my problem, Matt. And then we're just tempted to, and then we're going to do it our way. I don't know what God has said. I don't know what God is saying, but we're going to do it our way. And the key to understanding this, I think, is to go back to when this was first written back in the Old Testament. If you read the Deuteronomy version and the Joshua version, here's the scenario when this was first said. I will never leave you or abandon you. In both cases, God was talking to his people about going into a fight, going into a military battle. Joshua, let's use him as an example, going into the promised land. And they were going to face an army that had more than they did. They were better trained, better equipment. They had the land. They had the walls. If you remember the story of, the, uh, of Jericho and the Israelites against Jericho. And it's in that context of an outmanned, overpowered, under-resourced Jewish army on the cusp of going into the promised land. And promises are based on what? What God has said. And God shows up to his man Joshua and says, listen, you know what you're about to face militarily. Are you going to go with what you see and what they have? Or are you going to go with what I have said? And I have said, I am with you. So you may not have the weaponry they have or the number of troops they have, but you have me. First church in Hebrews. They may have taken your possessions. They may have taken your house. They may have taken your freedom. In the world's eyes, you have nothing, but you have me. So he's saying, when you sit down and look at your money, 
When you look at that advertisement that tempts you to have more or have something you currently don't have and convinces you you need what you don't have, God's like, no, you have me. That's what I've said. That's what I've said. And so the powerful thing about this is this. The battle line of money is not a math problem. It's not a two plus two is four or, you know, I got to get to 10 and I'm at eight, so I need two more. It's not that. For the Christ follower, money is not about math, it's about trust. Just like for the Israelites in Joshua chapter 1, it wasn't a military issue. It was a trust issue. It wasn't even a military strategy. It was what God said. I mean, remember, remember how they, if, if you remember the story, I'd encourage you to read some of Joshua's, one of my favorite Old Testament books. You know how they beat Jericho? It had nothing to do with military. It had nothing to do with it had everything to do with trust. And what did they have to trust? What God had said. Now, it gets even more interesting, okay? And this is why the Bible is so amazing. It's, it's one of the greatest miracles ever is the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though they were written thousands and thousands of years apart. So Israel goes into the battle. I'm in Joshua, okay? And they beat Jericho. And, and they get so puffed up and confident, then they go fight another battle. And they lose that battle, even though they should have actually won it. And do you know why they lose, lost that battle? Because one man, one man didn't obey or trust God when it came to possessions, when it came to money. Here's what happened. They lose the battle, and here's what God says. Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. Covenant is a trust relationship, right? Trust. Do you trust me, God says. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. So God basically said, hey, some of these things are going to be set apart to go in the treasury or rather to support the ministry and the temple and all that as, as they got established uh, as the people who were inhabiting the promised land. And he said, they have not only stolen them, but they've lied about it and hidden them among their own belongings. So they've kept something that doesn't belong to them. The first defeat after this amazing promise, hey, Joshua, I will be with you. I'm what you need. You have me. One guy said, no, I need something else. And he stole some plunder that God said he, that he was not allowed to take. And that resulted in the military defeat. Fast forward to Hebrews. Let's go back and look at what they're dealing with. And remember what God has said. Hey, you may not have a house. You may not have your freedom, but you have me. And then look at how they're described in Hebrews 10, 34. Powerfully. He says, look, you have accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So you've experienced loss. You have lost worldly, earthly treasures, and you've done so with joy, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession, and a lasting one. What's God saying? Hey, you may not have property, but you have me, and I am a better possession because you have me forever than a property that you'll eventually lose anyway. You see the logic? See what God has said? And, and so let's stop for a second. What is God saying about himself when he's giving these promises? What is God saying about himself when he's saying, you've got me? Here's what he's saying. He's describing a way that God is for his people. 
He's describing a way that God is for you and I. You know, we talk about, you know, God is gracious, meaning he forgives us. We talk about God is gracious and merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. We talk about God as our Lord and, and, you know, as the one who should lead our lives. We talk about God as our Savior and our Redeemer who forgives us and saves us from our sins. But when he says, hey, you have me, when he says, I am a better and lasting possession, what is God trying to tell us about himself? He's trying to say this. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. He's saying, God is saying, I'm better than money. God's saying, I'm a portion and a prize. I'm not just an insurance salesman. I'm not just a master strategist. I'm more than a counselor. I'm more than a comforter. I'm more than a savior. I'm more than a king. I'm more than a Lord. I am, more, I am a portion. I am a prize. And when you have me, you have all you need to be happy, satisfied, and free forever. So money tells us what we really believe about God. Because, again, remember our, math remember our money mentality? It's a math problem and a standard of living challenge. It's what it is, right? But if God is my portion, then money is not about more or less or standard of living. If God is the very best I can get, and I get God through the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life forever. So if I have God, and I get and understand God is my portion, then money is no longer a math problem or an issue of my standard of living, because I have all I need to be happy forever, to be happy for a thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So I'm thinking about this as I'm uh, praying and, and thinking and preparing through uh, this message. And I, and I was thinking about, and I've made some dumb, dumb decisions about money, okay? And, and I've pursued idols with money. So I, please hear me. I'm not standing up here trying to say I've got this all figured out. But, but I was going back through my life and my, and, and my marriage with Beth and things we've gone through, <clears throat> ups and downs and when we've gone really bold and what some people would say really dumb on money, but we did it in the name of Jesus. And I, and I wanted to share a quote. This is just my, my story. I'm not going to go into details, but I just want you to understand something because the, the greatest thing I want for anybody is for you to get and us to get and understand how awesome God is and that he truly is more than a savior, more than Lord and King. He's portion, he's prize, he's treasure forever. Okay. And so here's a, a statement of my testimony. Besides the gospel, money is probably one of the greatest ways to discover how awesome God is. Besides the gospel, if you, want, if you say, Matt, how can I get to know how amazing God is? You know, I'm going to give you some usual answers. And I'm going to say, hey, <laughs> worship, prayer, Bible study, the gospel, stare at the cross until love invades your heart. I mean, I'm going to say things like that. But I'm going to say, hey, look. Obey God with your money. And you will discover how awesome he is in a way that you may not yet know. And so at the end of the day, money is a means that God has put here inside of our economy. Jesus said more about money than heaven or hell. And 
it's a way for us. Yeah, it can be a substitute for God, a replacement for God, and there's dangers there. That's why it said be free from the love of money, right? But it's also ordained by God because I think God knows if we trust him with our money, obey him with our money, he's going to show us more of himself. And that's the greatest gift God could ever give us is more of himself. So let's go back, right? We, we walked in here and all of us have a money mentality, right? So now look, the math of money, more versus free and satisfied, standard of living, free and satisfied. We're free and satisfied because we have God, because we have God. Now, think about this for just a second. If we truly understood God as portion and prize, it would revolutionize things. So, so think about four statements. I'm going I'm to share four statements, okay? And it would, it would revolutionize this. Because a lot of us, we might say this. Hey, most of my plans for life, for my life, require more money. So when we quote Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Most of us, money's in that equation. But if God is portion and prize, then couldn't we say most of my plans for my life require me to get more of God? And if I get more of God, I've had a good life and I have a better eternity and the best is yet to come. Some of us, we could say this, fear and frustration are frequent emotions on the subject of money. Fear, frustration are frequent emotions on the subject of money. But if God is portion and prize, peace and generosity become the attitudes that we have about money. For many of us, especially in the West, especially in America, being blessed mostly involves money. Do you think the Hebrew Christians were blessed? I think they had a view of God that most of us can't comprehend because they had learned that God was better than money. Some of us, giving, giving money feels more like a loss or a, I know I'm a supposed to. If God's portion and prize, then giving money feels like part of my calling and I get to. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? Jesus' words. Jesus' words. Now, I, I want to pause for just a second. Because I, I understand in a church like ours, in a time like this, I know a lot of people have walked through a tough year and are still walking through a tough year in your business or you're still looking for a job or your restaurant or whatever. And, and so listen, here's, a, here's something I think we can work on understanding because some people are like, no, but my, my situation is bad, Matt, and God hasn't provided and God hasn't taken care of. And, and part of the reason of that, and hear me say this, and I say this in love and I say this because I want us to understand something. A lot of times when it comes to money, we think individualistically. And we think, man, God hasn't met my needs yet. God hasn't provided for me yet. God hasn't done that for me yet. And I've, I thought I was trusting God with my money, but I, the job hadn't come through. The bonus didn't come through. In fact, the bonus got eliminated. But here's the thing. God has ordained his church to provide for his people. So we're over here sitting here worried about money, stressed about money, in need of something, a legitimate need, and we don't ever think about, man, God will meet that need through his people. But that's what we see in the, in the scriptures. The first church, look at this. The church is like 
like weeks old. All the believers met together in one place, like we're doing this weekend, and in small groups, and they shared everything they had. They would even sell property and possessions and shared the money with those who were in need. And this is, this is what I've said. There should be no member of Rockbridge that ever has to get stressed about paying the rent, paying the utility bill, putting food on the table. Because your church should be here for you. And the why, the, one of the great reasons why at Robridge we do a unified budget, which means we, give, we, we, we don't really have a lot of designated monies, is so that we, all, we always have, because so many of you are so incredibly generous, we always have money to help people. I mean, I, I get calls all the time in the community. I, I, I bump into, you know, teachers who tell me about a kid who can't afford something like a, a, a shoes or a coat. And, and our other pastors do and our community partners that we're partnered with. And I am always able to say, we'll take care of that. We've got missionaries all over the world and other regions. And, and we're always able to support because I think we get this. But let's just understand something. If you're sitting out there, you're a part of Rockbridge, and you are in legitimate need, you're part of us. When you hurt, we hurt. And we collectively might be God's ordained way for, you to, for that need to get met. In fact, so prevalent was this in the first church, we have another example of it. Two chapters over, Acts 4, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. And the apostles kept testifying powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Have, have not, standard of living, the math of more is not in the equation. Why? Because they have a resurrected Jesus who is more than forgiver, more than savior, more than Lord, more than rabbi, more than teacher. He is portion and he is prize. And then the last verse that we'll look at in this package, this unit of thought in Hebrews is this. Therefore, because God is always with us, because he will not leave us or forsake us, therefore, we may boldly say, and he quotes now Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Two things. He's, he's still ta- the context of this is still about money and possessions. Two things. When it comes to money and possessions, what if boldness, confidence, and courage were our default emotions instead of worry, stress, fear, envy, and coveting? And we can be bold and confident. Why? Because of who God is. Again, he goes back to who God is and what God has said. And because I trust what God has said more than I trust what I have, don't have, I can be bold. Secondly, why does he say this? What can man do to me? Well, man can take earthly things, and that's what was going on in the context of first century, the first century church here that the Hebrews letter is written to. What can man do to me? See, a man can take away what you have temporarily. And man, in his fallen state, how do we keep score? We keep score with money, don't we? It's a scoreboard, let's admit it. How you doing? Scoreboard, how's the bank account doing? I'm good. I'm not good. I'm stressed. And, we, and the scoreboard we're looking at is money. But when he says, what can man do to me? You know what? We're looking at a different scoreboard. Our scoreboard is we have Jesus. We've already won. 
what can you take from me? What can you take from me? So let me give as a handlebar as a church, just so a, a, a what if, okay? What if anytime you face a money decision or you have a money emotion, because we've already established money, we have to make decisions and money gets emotional. We know that. It is what it is, right? So what if we're dealing with a money emotion and or a money decision and we went first to what God has said? And what has God said? God is with me. God is for me. So before I write the check, before I make the purchase, before I get stressed about the numbers and the math, what if I just remembered and leaned into what God has said? God is with me. God is for me. God is with me. God is for me. God is with me. God is for me. And I leaned into what God has said. And here's my prayer for all of us. I, I fundamentally believe when we lean into this with all our might, heart, and soul, when we trust God and what he has said, we'll be able to say two things that are incredibly, the, the, just incredible blessings. We'll be able to say this. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And it is, in fact, more blessed to give than to receive. That is the freedom and that is the satisfaction available to all of us when we go, not with what we have or don't have or want to have, but when we go with what God has said. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we love you and thank you. God, give us eyes this weekend to see you as portion and prize. God, some of us may see you as a judge. Some of us may see you as distant. Some of us may see you as savior. Some of us may see you as Lord. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see you as portion and prize. And then when we see you that way, we would lean in. God, not to what we have, don't have, or want to have. We would lean into what you have said. And God, what have you said? You're with us. You're for us. You'll never leave us. You'll never abandon us. And we thank you for those things. God, we are your people. Thank you for being our portion forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.